0: Ah, good evening. So both my colleagues congratulated you on day one and on day two. I'd like to offer you a short poem about day three. It's by Kabir and it's called A Great Pilgrimage. Kabir said, I felt the need of a great pilgrimage So I sat still for three days, and God came to me. I felt the need of a great pilgrimage, so I sat still for three days, and God came to me. Okay. So three days. I trust you're settling in a bit more that the practice is becoming um, somewhat more familiar to you, that um, things are feeling a bit more easeful as we get used to uh, being here and the rhythm of the days and the rhythm of the practice. This morning Sharon talked about uh, metta being embedded in the Brahma-viharas, and tonight I'd like to speak to uh, a sort of greater context of, uh, in, which we can, in which we can view metta so it's something, the talk tonight, is something of a reflection. Uh, it's a, a reflection on how metta, the practice that we're doing here, uh, fits into the greater context of the teachings. And the teaching that I'd like to, um, to talk about is one of the great Buddhist teachings across all traditions. It's a teaching of on the perfection of the perfections of the heart. In a way they are the guides to enlightened living. And they're sometimes called the Paramitas, the Ten Perfections of a Buddha. <laughs> so someone asked today uh, why do we do this practice? And it's a good question that um, asks us to look at what we're, what we're really doing and why. That's a great start. Oh, here it is. I thought I brought what I wanted to read to you. I didn't bring it. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the story if I can remember it well. It's a story of a young boy who uh, comes across Michelangelo as he's uh, doing his thing with, uh, with, the, with his chisel and, and the rock. And the young boy says, hey, Mr. Signor, why, why are you doing that? Why are you hitting the, uh, the rock with a chisel? And, of course, that's a great question, right? Um, not, uh, what do you think you're doing? How, how do you think this will all turn out or anything? Just, why are, you, why are you doing what you're doing? And Michelangelo says, because I'm trying to release the angel from the rock. And in some ways that's what we're doing. We are looking at the rock of our own lives and using all of the ways that we have at our disposal to use our chisels to release our own angels from the rock of our lives. And so we could really call this retreat uh, the transformation of the heart. Because that is our intention and that is the task that we set upon to transform the heart. And it's not just the transformation of the heart for ourselves alone. But it's actually, and Mark talked about this this afternoon, we tenderize the heart and quite naturally the crust of fear, of defensiveness, of isolation, all of those things that we've grown around our hearts, and some people spoke about this today in, um, in our meeting, all of these, this crust that we've grown for protection against the exigencies of life, the difficulties of life, begins to dissolve. So what happens then? the natural luminosity of the heart begins to shine again, it reappears. These paramis that I'm going to speak about in the the context of metta and metta in the context of the paramis are qualities that are not acquired, they emerge naturally as manifestations of the awakened heart, the tender heart. And of course metta is one of these ten paramis. I'll tell you the list of them in a few moments. And so hope you, hopefully what you'll see is that each of these qualities, these perfections of a Buddha, has some mutuality with metta. And metta is an expression of many of them, and many of them are expressions of metta. And for me I've found the teachings to be this way, that there's a kind of holographic quality to the teachings, that there are many doorways that are offered to us. The Buddha was brilliant in that way. He offered so many doorways to so many different people of different temperaments and Uh, qualities and abilities and so these teachings that have come down to us come down in uh, so many different variations and ways and approaches uh, to practice. So metta, like all of the like the other paramis, arises from the natural goodness of the heart. So we could say that uh, the paramis are forms of metta, and metta is a form of the paramis, the way to enlightened living, the perfections of a Buddha. So I think you can see that our practice then, the practice that we've been doing here, this very beautiful, simple practice of summoning Uh, goodwill from the heart. Summoning good wishes for ourselves and for other beings is not adjunct or incidental. It's essential to Buddhist practice the way of the heart. And it has application not only in a meditation retreat but it's also the quality of heart that we can bring into everyday life and into relationship when we leave retreat and indeed even though we're in silence here it's worthwhile to reflect on the fact that we are in relationship here we're moving around the building together you no know, we're in relationship to each other's shoes Right? We walk into the shoe room and we see, oh, that person's here. Oh, yeah, that one's here. Oh, where's that one? Right, We know that just by the shoes. Right? So we're in relationship. We're, we may not be speaking to each other. But we sit next to each other, we hear each other coughing and wheezing and snoring and you know, all of the things that bodies do. And so... It's not as if, because we're in a silent practice, we're here in it alone. We're supporting each other, we're we're supported by each other, and we support each other. And as Mark said today again, that as we practice and retreat, we learn to hold life with some spaciousness, so that when we go back out into the world, we're not overwhelmed by the suffering. So you could say that our practice of metta moves towards our discovery or fulfillment of our own Buddha nature. The qualities of a Buddha that are inherent in all beings. The story about the paramis, as the story is told, is that a long time ago, uh, the Buddha was when the Buddha was born uh, into a different life, into one of his many lives that are told in what are called the Jataka tales of different uh, lives that he had as a rabbit, as a prince from Benares, as different, um, different uh, bodies, forms that he was uh, born into. In this particular life he was an ascetic named Sumedha. And he was walking through his village and he saw a great sage walking through the village, too, and this great sage was a Buddha, the Buddha of that day, called Dipankara. And the Buddha was so struck by Dipankara, Sumedha, I'm sorry, the ascetic Sumedha was so struck by Dipankara that he vowed that he would do whatever it took for as many lifetimes as it took to attain Buddhahood. And it said that Dipankara uh, saw this with his uh, wisdom eye and predicted that the Buddha, the Bodhisattva then, who is uh, the Buddha that we, whose teachings we study, would indeed attain uh, Buddhahood. So the Buddha said, "I vow whatever it takes to become an awake- awakened, wise, and compassionate being." Whatever I need to do, I will do. And so for, it said that for eons and four immensities, the Buddha practiced compassion, metta, virtue, etc., which we will talk about the perfections before becoming the present Buddha. It's said that he had to do so over a 100,000 Mahakalpas, you ask, what is a mahakalpa? I know that was the question in your mind. Well it's said that a mahakalpa is the amount of time it takes for a bird with a silk scarf in its beak flying over a mountain seven miles high and seven miles wide. This bird with the silk scarf in its beak flies over this mountain, once every hundred years. And it, however long it takes for the bird doing that to wear down this seven mile by seven mile mountain, that is one mahakalpa. So the Buddha practiced, and went through uh, the perfection of these qualities over a hundred thousand mahakalpas. And four immensities. We won't talk about the four immensities. (laughs) I mean, we have trouble getting through three days of retreat, right? (laughs) So the idea is that we don't have to do it for a 100,000 mahakalpas. But that in a way, I believe that that, uh, the use of that kind of language is really um, to move us into a timeless space because the, quali- the development of these qualities is not linear. Just as the teachings are not linear. And, and I think you'll see that as we reflect on Metta and the, um, and, the, and, and the Paramis, that this story takes us out of time. It's like, it's, it's in, in some ways m- mythical and archetypal because it's timeless. They don't come in time, they're here and now, these qualities. In all circumstances, in the eternal present. In the eternal present is the possibility of awakening. The possibility of freedom. Of the greatness of heart. possibility of joy. It's said that And the the Buddha said that what he teaches, he teaches for the sure heart's release. So these qualities are the qualities that manifest when the heart is open and released, when we open to a genuine sense of peace and connectedness and love that is our true nature. So these paramis there are ten of them in uh, in the Theravadan tradition. If you're familiar with Zen you'll know that they, um, have, they have them as six. But in the Theravadan tradition there are ten. And I'd like to just tell you what they are and we're going to go through them. I'm going to just touch on most of them because we don't have time to go into them deeply, but I I hope that at the end you'll really see that the qualities that we develop as we develop this practice um, are really releasing these uh, paramis in your own nature. So the qualities are uh, generosity, virtue, renunciation, energy, wisdom, truthfulness, patience, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. So the first is generosity. And generosity is not something you should do. It's, in a way, a universal law. Because opening to generosity means that we're opening to freedom and joy. Freedom of uh, letting go. And of course, uh, you ask, you, we should reflect on what it is we need to let go of. Because actually, there's nothing that we really own. There's a story that a wealthy man died and left a huge estate and someone said, well, how much did he leave? And someone said, why everything, of course? Right? Because there's absolutely nothing that we take with us, nothing that really rightly belongs to us. We are, we're sort of tenants here in this body. So, Generosity, as a paramita, is also when we reflect, um, an expression of metta. And of uh, love and metta, Martin Luther King said, I am convinced that love is the most durable power in the world. It is not an expression of impractical idealism but of practical realism. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, love is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. And so this metta, this loving kindness, this love that we are... um, uh, cultivating, is expressed in this first parami of generosity. Generosity is parallel to or likened to metta because metta doesn't seek any benefit for itself. As we wish for the well-being of ourselves, of our friends, of our benefactors, all beings, etc you may notice that you're not asking for anything in return. Metta is a way of sending out these wishes and not becoming attached to or preoccupied with results. There are no conditions. So generosity is the expression of the organic wish of everyone to be happy. We recognize that in well-wishing we're connecting in a true way with all of the beings in our universe. And why can this happen? It happens because we're already connected. Not because there's some magic that happens. But that we are a part, we are inevitably and inexorably a part of the net of life. Again, Martin Luther King talks about this. He says that it really boils down to the fact that all of life is interconnected and that whatever affects one of us directly affects everyone indirectly. He says that the universe is naturally structured in an inescapable network of mutuality and we are dependent in obvious and non-obvious ways And if that is so, then generosity, as the expression of an open heart, is self-evident. So mutual interdependence becomes mutual support. We don't have to become generous. We just get out of the way of the flow, out of the impeding impediments to the flow and we let our natural heart of generosity flow. (coughs) Emerson said, called it the endless circulation of divine charity. He pointed out that the very stars hold themselves on course through the mutual interchange of energy. So generosity, the first parami, is a natural expression of things just as they are. It's a natural expression of the awakened heart. And of course it forms the foundation, this expression of metta forms the foundation of our practice because without generosity, without an open heart the teachings cannot fall in. So our our whole, our entire practice is dependent on this quality of generosity. So the joy of giving comes from the natural generosity of the universe. We are the legatees, the Um, beneficiaries of the way the universe is structured. Everything, the trees, the bees, the snow, the rain, the sun, the wind, the moon, everything, everything, the way the universe is structured gives us life. It's It's a divine flow that is constantly giving. And so this quality of generosity becomes a natural expression of the um, awakened mind and heart. Think just think for a moment of your generous benefactor, who is in your lifetime has given you love, has given you time, respect, money, maybe. And as you remember this benefactor and Bring him or her to heart, think of how joyful they are in the giving. That's why you think of them as benefactors. Not because they've sort of given to you stingily and said, well, maybe I can give you some of this, but not some of that. But that there's a feeling in the giving of this flowing, this flowing of goodwill and love. And so we think of these people with admiration and respect, partly because we are really respecting the expression of metta in the form of generosity. It's a lovely story about Gandhi when someone asked him how it is that he gives so much, how does it feel to give so much to the people of India? And he said, I don't give to the people of India, I give to myself. All right? That's the generous heart. So, this is generosity, the first quality of the heart, of our natural Buddha nature, when we let go. And the second is integrity, the joy, the happiness of integrity or virtue. This integrity within ourselves is to not cause harm, to say what's true to not take what is not offered, to take other people's property. Respect the things of the world and not create paranoia and fear when people are taking what belongs to others. To be careful with sexuality and not misuse intoxicants. may sound familiar because we took those five precepts on the first night of the retreat. This is the basis for living an awakened life, a good life. To not kill, not steal, not lie, not do what's harmful. Because virtue expresses the awakened heart, the awakened mind, and the sense that it expresses our care and a certain joy of heart that we have for beings in the world. Chief Seattle spoke of us as being merely a strand in the web of life. And as I quoted to you from Martin Luther King, he (coughs) talked about us being in a single garment of destiny. In his Nobel speech he said, No man is an island, he, he quoted John Donne, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent a part of the main. This interwoven garment of which we are all a part needs us to live in uh, alignment with the values of the awakened heart. When we care for others, we care for ourselves. This heart of virtue and integrity is a real caring, a real expression. Sometimes it's called the gift of fearlessness. Because what we do (coughs) when we live in alignment with these values, we give the gift of fearlessness that no one needs to fear us because they know that what we say, our, our word, is gold. That we will speak the truth. That we won't take what is not ours, that we won't harm through a profligate use of sex or, or of intoxicants. And again, you can see that this is a quality that is a natural expression of a heart that is filled with kindness. The third quality of the perfection of the heart, our own true nature, is renunciation. Rumi says of this, a good gauge of spiritual health is to write down the three things you most want. If they in any way differ, you are in trouble. (laughs) A good gauge of spiritual health is to write down the three things you most want. If they in any way differ, you are in trouble. In the West, we're a little bit afraid of this word renunciation, right? Because we're so used to indulgence. But renunciation speaks to a natural the natural renunciation of the heart. It's a kind of inner coolness, a kind of simplicity for which we all long. We share this longing to be um, we share this longing for it wherever we are whether we're with friends, work, children, creativity, etc. We know that simplifying our lives is a good idea. So it's really a mind blower to me that we don't do it, right? I know for myself, I sometimes look at my calendar and I can't believe what I've created, right? How many of you would like to simplify your lives? Oh, come on, more of you want to do it, I know that. (laughs) So the Buddha taught that the most uh, basic form of renunciation is in the heart. And it's the, it's the renunciation of greed and grasping. It's that driven quality that we have. It's renunciation of hate, hatred, kind of grasping that makes us attack each other and even attack ourselves. It's the renunciation of fear. In the Bhagavad Gita, they, it says, give your heart to the world and hope for the best. So it's a renunciation of the idea that we're in control of anything. We show up with as deeply as we can with our hearts and we offer what is possible for us to offer. Something in us knows the wisdom of simplicity. Thomas Merton said, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to commit to too many projects, surrender to too many demands to want to help everyone in everything, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. So it's the spirit, renunciation is the spirit of letting go. kind of kindness to ourselves. We let go because we care for ourselves. (coughs) We make room for some grace in our lives because we don't know what's next. So there's generosity, virtue, and renunciation. And next is energy. It's the wise use of our life energy and the power we've been given. And the first task of this energy is simply to be present. It's the courage to be present and to be balanced in the effort that we extend, in the energy that we put out. And I think Sharon was speaking um, about that. That essentially so much of this practice of metta is really working with balance. And energy is certainly one of the most important elements that we balance. So that we're not so forceful that we blow our th- the reserves of energy that we have and the mind becomes restless and um, takes us away. But then, on the other hand, neither are we so um, uh, low in the energy in the amount of energy that we express that nothing happens right so that our practice of energy and as as one of the as, as one of the paramis is to know that energy is an essential expression of the awakened heart because we need the, we need energy for expression and yet to keep it in balance all the time one of, one of you is speaking about um, playing the viola today and how getting the right music from the viola required uh, hitting the strings just right, hitting them at the right place, finding, in effect, the right energy. So we extend, we extend our energy to work with whatever is arising. In moments we notice fear and contraction and hatred and delusion and greed. In other moments we notice moments of clarity, the possibility of compassion, balance. We receive them and we let them nourish the heart. It's the presence, the energy of presence. And we see what can grow in each moment. And it is a kind of balance of knowing that mistakes happen. So we're not so much looking for a perfection in the sense of making things perfect. But putting out whatever energy is needed in the moment to work with what is arising. And in order to do that we need to have some courage that mistakes may be made, but that without putting out energy, nothing happens. So we're not afraid to make mistakes, to give ourselves, our hearts, to each moment in the best way that we can. So the energy that we, what we're talking about with the, this uh, perfection is the steadiness of heart without struggle. We're not fighting and struggling against what is, but really using our energy to have appropriate response to how things are. Mm. Making mistakes, we understand, as part of the learning. So there's a lovely poem from Riyakan, a Zen uh, priest and poet from the ancient times, said, the morning's begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children again this spring. Last year, foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) We're not afraid to make mistakes. We're not afraid to be foolish. We're in the present moment with whatever energy is necessary (coughs) with our beings, with our hearts, and with our eyes. So that's generosity, virtue, renunciation, and energy. And the next is the perfection of wisdom, which is also part of our true nature. It's not to see things as we wish they were. It's not knowledge. I was just in South Africa this last uh, December and January and had the privilege of being um, guided by a Zulu guide. And it was so amazing to be with uh, someone who was so close to the rhythms of the earth and to really... Um, drink in the wisdom that he had as he took us through, um, through the bush, really, to, um, to see what we could see in terms of the natural rhythms of the animals living in their natural habitat. And he was not a well-educated person, but he was incredibly wise. He talked about his connection to the ancestors and how and all of the customs that the Zulus have with respect to marriage and family and uh, that nothing is done without um, speaking to the ancestors. And he was a young man who was um, thinking of marrying his sweethearts. And it was so beautiful to just sit and talk to him about uh, what his understanding was of stepping into manhood in that way and becoming the head of a family. And I was so moved by the understanding of wisdom as being part of um, our natural birthright. That as we uh, ally with the natural rhythms of the earth, that the earth teaches us. This perfection of wisdom is not a, an addiction to perfection of ideas of how we should be and how others should be, but rather it's the wisdom of openness, seeing things as they are. This is from the Tao. When people see things as beautiful, other things become ugly. When people see some things as good, others become bad. Being and non-being create each other. Difficult and easy support one another. Short and long, high and low, depend on one another. Therefore, the wise person acts without fighting anything and teaches without saying a word. Things arise and she lets them come. When things disappear, she lets them go. She has, but she doesn't possess. She acts without expecting. When everything is done, she remains in peace. So this quality of wisdom knows that we can't possess things in this world, that we can love them, we can see them for what they are, we can nourish them, we can respect them, but we can't control them. We can't control the outcome of anything we do. We can just do the best we can. So wisdom is this mirror that sees life and relates to it from a place of steadiness. A place of knowing. So to have that wisdom That natural wisdom, as Mark was saying this afternoon with the uh, (coughs) metaphrases, to really allow the phrases to spring from that place of wisdom within you. So that we're not contriving anything. But we're actually allowing this wisdom that is a natural part of our awakened heart to express itself. So the next uh, quality is truthfulness. To tell the truth to ourselves about our bodies, our minds, our hearts, about who we are. And of course part of that is to tell the truth collectively, societally. To tell the truth about racism and injustice. About the craziness of our culture, the addictions, how we create food shortages so that people are starving around the world, and yet we have foods stored in silos so that we can raise the prices, tell the truth about the nutrition of the kind of food that we are sold these days. Tell the truth about the fears of our life. In some ways, the reason I think that uh, the Buddha's Dharma has lasted all of these years is because it's based in truth. The Four Noble Truths. That there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering. It's possible that it can end. And there's a path. My teacher pointed out that Scott Peck wrote this book called The Road Less Traveled, and it begins with a simple three-word sentence, life is hard. And he thinks that that's why it sold so many copies. (laughs) (laughs) So truthfulness sees that life is beautiful, and it's mysterious, and it's difficult. And so to speak what is true and what is useful. And the Buddha gave some guidelines for truth. He said, if we are going to admonish another, we should speak in due season, not out of season. In truth, not in falsehood. Gently, not harshly, to their benefit and not to their loss. With kindly intent, And compassion. So we see what's true, and in the seeing of what's true, it's possible to respond appropriately. If we don't know what's true, we can never respond appropriately because we're responding to another situation, not the one that's in front of us. So we rest in a truthful heart with compassion. Because the truth is not always easy to absorb or to be with. And yet it's vital. So the next quality is to find our being. And see the quality of dedication or determination. It's more... um, usually translated. It's an awakening of a steadiness of heart and knowing the power of intention. So we set our heart in, in one direction for a week or a, a year or for a lifetime, maybe even for eternity. And one of the first dedications or determinations of the spiritual life is wakefulness, to see things, this dedication or this determination to see things exactly as they are. Not as we wish they were, not as we think they should be, but exactly as they are. And so to be mindful, to be determined in this practice of mindfulness and this practice of metta, to know what is present without resisting, without grasping, without trying to make it different. And yet, still having an open heart that wishes for the best for everyone. Not only a dedication to presence, but a dedication to kindness and compassion. So we were talking this afternoon, Mark was talking with you this afternoon about the quality of heart of a bodhisattva. That the bodhisattva is dedicated to the awakening of all beings in life. And the way of the bodhisattva is to bring compassion and care in all circumstances, whatever is happening. A quality of determination that no matter what is happening that we will be kind. We will uh, act with compassion. That we will act not to prolong suffering or to strengthen suffering, but to end it. There's a writing from Viktor Frankl who was in the concentration camps. He said, we who lived in the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts giving away their last piece of bread and comforting others. They may have been few in number but they attest to the last of human freedoms. The freedom to choose our spirit in any given circumstance. This is the power of this determination to include caring for all beings in every action or response so from this determination we find a freedom of spirit what be, what uh, results is is deep metta deep kindness and transcendence of the circumstances of our life, not because we deny them or suppress them or um, reject them or uh, pretend they're not there, but because we go through them and through, through going through the circumstances of life we are able to transcend. But the difference is that our life is led from the heart rather than from all of the changing things around us. So we dedicate ourselves to awakening. This is another, this is another um, manifestation of the awakened heart. We value it. We do what we need to do in order to express it, to cultivate it. So what have we so far? Generosity, ethics or integrity, virtue, renunciation, energy, wisdom, truthfulness. I've skipped patience. Just realized that. Good thing I went through it. Just have a little patience with me. <laughs> so in the... Um Surimaga, which is one of the texts that where the practice of the metta is discussed and commented on. I uh, encountered a really interesting um, sentence. It said um, that as preparation for the metta practice one should review the disadvantages in hatred (laughs) and the advantages in patience. And I kind of stiffened up, my, my body went, oh! Because I'd never kind of juxtaposed those two qualities as opposites, right? But I found it incredibly interesting because as I began to review the disadvantages in hatred and the advantages in the quality of patience, I realized how penetrating that was. That actually, and as I started to practice it, I realized that every time aversion comes up in my body-mind, that if I meet it with patience, that the aversion begins to dissolve, and so it's a for me it's a very beautiful practice to not so much try to apply a um, you know to 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 jump into a meta practice you know the the, the formal meta practice but to actually first bring a quality of patience, a kind of open, spacious waiting to see what's going to happen next, rather than indulging in the habitual reaction that arises when something happens that I don't want, or where I want something else to happen, or um, It's not to my liking. That the quality that I have been working with uh, bringing to those situations is patience. And I've realized that the ability to wait when anger arises in the mind really teaches me about anger. Because often, when anger is coming up, I'm feeling like a victim. And especially when I feel unjustly like a victim. A lot of energy comes up around righteous indignation, right? I'm sure you don't understand what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) But patience allows us to wait for this cloud of anger that distorts the mind to um, to subside. And when that anger subsides, then appropriate action can the, the appropriate response becomes evident. I was at a teaching um, with the Dalai Lama when he was teaching about patience uh, through Shantideva's guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And he read each verse of chapter 6, which is the uh, chapter on patience, 134 verses, and he commented on each one. And every verse proposed different situation in which anger arises in the mind, 134 verses. And everyone um, proposed appropriate responses. And as he as he read the last verse he leaned forward and he put his hand his head in his hand and when he picked up his head and i I noticed that he was crying and I know I've been present when he's taught that chapter and that verse many times and I was I was very touched by how it obviously moved him to say that um, any response to vexation other than patience is unwise. Just unwise. So if we have the patience to wait, it leads to clarity, and clarity allows for the truth of the situation to emerge. So it's not, to me, it's, it's really... Um, not surprising that patience is um, not only a, a, sorry, that's telling me that I'm talking too long, um, that, it's, uh, that it's not, it's not just, <laughs> I got into it and I forgot to look at the clock. Um, sorry (laughs) thank you I really appreciate it see it really is a way of helping you teaching you about patience I don't even remember where I was so I'm going to have patience with myself for a moment Yeah, so I was saying that it that it's it's not surprising then that patience is a quality um, in the uh, in in the paramis in the list of paramis, but that it's also part of the practice of metta. Right, so that this reviewing of the disadvantages in hatred and the advantages in patience can be a kind of practice that you do when you. When you notice that whatever is happening in your practice is not what you want, right? That, you know, you're doing the phrases and, you know, instead of this beautiful, luminous angel emerging from the rock, right? You've got this dark angel who's, you know, angry about this or wanting something else or your knees are hurting or your back is hurting or whatever is happening that you'd rather not be happening that the appropriate response is patience, and that that, too, is um, a perfection. So the last two qualities are metta and equanimity. And, of course, metta is the inherent connection that we share with all living, breathing beings that comes immediately to this awakened heart when we release our sense of separateness and we see our oneness with others. And in seeing that oneness we wish for their happiness, their joy, their safety, their peace, their health and their ease and well-being. And, of course, we know that more than um, that the practice itself, the technical practice, is a way into this perfection of kindness. I love the fact that love is a verb as well as a noun. So that we're not only... Um, looking at a quality of heart but we're also looking at how it manifests in our life. Because it's a quality of heart that becomes uh, the basis for our action. And we bring this quality of presence and nourishment to ourselves and to those whom we meet. And this quality of love has strength and honesty and depth in any circumstance. And we hold each other in a heart of compassion. And so even our suffering is not for ourselves alone. It too has an impact on the world. And we know that this perfection of metta, it's not that we make ourselves different than we are. But we hold ourselves in every single being that we meet in this huge heart of mercy, of respect, and of presence. And then there's equanimity which we will, as Sharon said, we'll talk about over the next couple of days, we'll talk about compassion and mudita and equanimity, which are emanations of metta. But this last perfection, the balance of heart, of equanimity, sees the picture of the universe from a large perspective. It sees all of the worldly winds coming and going, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, loss, uh, fame and disrepute, everything changing day after day after day. And in equanimity, we rest in this peaceful heart. So metta and the paramis fit together hand in glove. They both point to the possibility of freedom. It's the underlying practice that we share. The Mm -hmm. mindfulness practice that we did the first day, the metta practice. All the practices we share have the same aim. The sure heart's release. These qualities of heart that we develop together because we are together for the benefit of all beings, because we are not separate. As Sharon said, we're not trying to be great meditators here. We're looking to see what is possible in the heart when we remove the obscurations of these luminous qualities of mind and heart. And that's what we're doing here. It's a great work we do and I'm deeply humbled to be in service to you as you do it. Thank you. Let's just sit for a moment. And as you walk tonight, you can reflect on what qualities of heart are emerging for you most prominently as the practice develops. And as you make your wishes for yourself, for your benefactor, for your friend, for all of the beings here, know that with each wish, each one of these qualities of the awakened heart is emanating, is being developed along with the heart of loving kindness and compassion. May you have wisdom and compassion in your life, in your heart, in your families and in your communities.